Hello, all of you, and welcome to Grace Baptist Cartersville podcast. Before I turn it over to Pastor Kyle, Good morning and welcome back to the Grace Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like more information on Grace Baptist Church here in Cartersville, Georgia, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Our live services are up and running on YouTube as well. If you've got questions, I mean this, I'd love to get a question from you. Email me. My name is Kyle Clayton. I'm the pastor at Grace Baptist Church. You can email me at Kyle, K-Y-L-E, at gracecartersville.com. Thank you so much for being with us. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're having a great week so far. And we are back in the book of James. Now, before we get started, we're going to begin with James chapter 2 today, but let's cover what we've done briefly in the past couple of weeks. Really, there's no better way to put it than we've gotten two gut punches from James so far. And this is really just kind of the way the rest of the epistle is written out. James doesn't pull any punches. But the first week, James gave us the line, Consider it joy when we endure trials. Trials help us grow our faith. Trials help to build up endurance, which is what we desperately need. Now, last week, hey, it sounds pretty good to say things like trials build our faith. It sounds pretty to say that we are believers. But saying it and listening to it is not enough. We must become doers of the word. That's going to be a theme that we're going to hear the rest of the books. I hope you get it. We've even practiced the service. I asked our congregation to take 90 seconds uh, to engage with one another and ask other questions from a biblical standpoint, so that way we were doing the word together. But from here on out, James is going to be very consistent with his application. And this is where some biblical scholars will say that James is a little bit shallow. But for me personally, this is a spot where I say that we need the book of James most. It's a shock to our spiritual system to make sure that we are following the word of God and what it says and not overly just blending into society. So if you would, if you've got your Bibles, open up to James chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. 
So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you for your word. It seems we pray this every week, but Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We want to take it, chew on it, meditate on it for the purposes of us becoming more like you. We want to act it. Show us, Lord, how to act your word out this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to jump right into it. There's going to be four points today, and I want to start off with this first one. It may sound kind of odd at first, but the first point, paying for pews. You know, kind of like pews in churches. Now, I've mentioned to some of you before, you may not know this, but I got to spend two summers while I was in college playing in the Valley Baseball League in Virginia. I never knew that I would love the state of Virginia as much as I did, and I still get to enjoy going back whenever I get to go back. But the two summers that I stayed up there, I lived with a host family. These people, bless their hearts, had enough means and didn't think it crazy that they were going to allow a stinky college-age baseball player to come live with them for a few months. But that's what I got to do. And I loved staying where I was uh, near the northern part of Virginia. And I was 40, 45 minutes away from Washington, D.C. I was 10 to 15 minutes away from the Manassas Battleground, where one of the first major battles of the Civil War took place. I was in a history education major's hog heaven. It was so nice. And my host family, I loved it. They wanted to take me to off-the-beaten-path places, places where there wasn't a lot of fan publicity, a lot of fanfare. And in one of my last days up there, my host mother, her name was Shelly, she wanted to take me to a place called Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia, still up today. And if you go to Christ Church, just as I said, no publicity, couldn't really believe it, but in this old church, the doors were wide open, so we just walked on in and made ourselves at home. It was a beautiful Episcopal church that was built in 1773. If you walk up the main aisle, you notice the pews that are set up there. They're wooden. Most of them are extremely old. They've been there for a long time. And you'd come across some with a nameplate on the side of them. Now, this was done in that time especially, to help the church raise funds. When pews first became a part of churches, it was for families to pay for them, to buy them, and have their regular seating place. It sounds kind of odd today, but that's exactly what they did. And you come across one in Christ Church in Virginia, and it has the nameplate of Washington on it. Washington. This was the pew of George Washington's family, where he attended church, where he sat. It was pretty cool to see. But I say all of that to prove this point. That pew is commemorated because, hey, the first president of the United States came to church there. All right, I get it. But the next time you go to church, I want you to do something for me. I want you to look around at the seats or the pew that you sit on. Is there a nameplate on it? Check the material. Check where it was made. Check all these things. More than likely, there isn't a name. 
Here's the point. There's not going to be. At Grace Baptist Church, I've mentioned it before, we're general admission. It's first come, first serve. When you get there and you sit down, you get to sit where you decide. We don't save seats unless you've got family members coming, but just because you sit there every Sunday and you've sat there for the past 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever the case may be, if someone else chooses to sit there, that's their prerogative to do so. Even if the President of the United States showed up at Grace Baptist Church, whether he's a current president or whether he's a former president, we would not cater to him any different than any of our other members. And I think we can get behind that idea. The, the idea that even the president has the same footing as we do when we come to church. But is it clear to you personally? Sometimes when we make it personal, it means something a little bit different. Here's what I mean. If you look around again at the place that you're currently sitting on a Sunday morning, your name isn't on that seat. And if we're not too careful, we can quickly disobey Scripture by putting ourselves in higher esteem from someone else that comes walking through the door. And what happens, what does it say that James tells us happens whenever we do this? We become a judge of evil, a judge making a distinction, a judge with evil thoughts. Harking back to doing the Word, we can say that there is room for everyone at Grace Baptist Church. We can say that all are el- uh, that all are welcome. But if this is not our action, it doesn't matter what we say. In fact, we become deceitful. We become exactly what we were trying to avoid by casting off others because of our own hypocrisy. So in our humility that the Lord is trying to build up within us, please be reminded, wherever you go to church, we are here to welcome. We are here to make others feel comfortable before ourselves, and we must go out of the way to do so. All of this is yet another easy way for us to say that we must do God's Word. Why? Well, let's move on to point two. Now, If you needed more reason to have an explanation as to why we shouldn't show favoritism, James dives a bit further into this, which tells us it must have been a pretty big issue that he felt like he needed to address. Remember, he's not addressing just one church, but he's addressing the church in general at this point. So he had seen this in various places. But the second point today, turning the world upside down. Looking back again at chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, it actually harks back to something that we read in chapter 1. 5 through 7, James says that the Lord chose the poor to be rich in faith. And he gives the reminder that the rich are the ones that oppress with their greed and they blaspheme the name invoked over you. Blaspheme the name? They blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. And this sounds very similar to what we read in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. They were an illustration that the earthly, financially poor will be rich in faith. And the rich, earthly, very comfortable, the earthly rich need humility and surrender in their faith. To put it in another aspect, I love these verses from 1 Corinthians. This is how Paul relays a very similar message that James is saying in chapter 2. 
Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. Summed up in verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Putting both of these into perspective, putting them together, what is the Bible trying to teach us? The things of the world that have worth, that have value or viewed as valuable, they don't really matter. Those things, those people that we view to be the least, they are the ones that will turn the world upside down for the name of Jesus Christ. Well, look at the example that we're given. Look at the disciples. They were less educated fishermen, political zealots, tax collectors, people that society mostly looked down upon and didn't want to be associated with. Now, if we believe this to be the case and we have the evidence to prove it, why on earth? Would we lay out the red carpet for someone in the church and yet not for others based on their wealth? Why? Grace Baptist Church, why has this allowed to be the case in the past? Shame on us. It's time to repent and turn away. Now, my favorite story, my favorite illustration to go with these verses. It's not a perfect illustration. I don't mean to overly spiritualize anything, but hear my heart, what comes from it. One of my favorite illustrations of the Lord using something foolish to shame the wise. Let me share with you this. My wife and I are dog people. We love them. Uh, if you're not a dog person, you might just want to skip ahead to a later part of this podcast, but uh, we are dog people. We can't help it. Always have been. My wife, Sarah Beth, has grown up with them. I grew up with them. And our first fur baby together as a married couple was a 135 pounds of goofy clumsiness Great Dane, and his name was Huckleberry Clayton. Now, when Huck was only three years old, we noticed a limp, and a bump on his back leg. Let it go for a couple weeks just to see what was going on, and then after a couple weeks, we took him to the vet, and we received the worst news that we expected. He had an, a, very, a very aggressive form of bone cancer, and we were given several options. One, put the poor dog through an amputation, a regular bout of chemo and radiation, spend an extra gajillion dollars a year, and maybe get a year of life out of him. Okay, that wasn't a really good option. The other option was no treatment, manage the pain with medication as best as we could, and we might have two to three months. Well, didn't want to put him through the amputation. Didn't want to put him through the chemo and the radiation. Didn't really think that was a, a good life to live. And we decided to just ride it out as best as we could. Uh, poor thing became a, a case study. His x-rays were sent to another vet in Texas. They were doing tests on it and they were conducting research and blah, 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 blah. All that going on. Uh, so in the process, 
we had to take him fairly regularly for x-rays. They wanted to see the progression of this cancer. Well, a couple months rolled by, and the vet kind of scratched his head when we went in. There was no growth. Vet said, well, the pain meds and the other medication must be working better than we expected, and what else you're giving him is, is slowing it down, so let's just keep up regular visits. Okay, cool. A couple more months rolled by, and this is past already the life expectancy that we thought he would have. Go back, take, take x-rays, no growth. The vet said, wow, these meds are really good. And at this point, I had a good enough relationship with this doctor that I could tell him, no, doc, that's a miracle. And he said, well, you know, maybe. He hesitated and said, yeah, I, sure, but we like to try to explain it from a scientific point of view as best as we can. Sure, totally understand that. I'm fine with that. As we continued to build a relationship with our vet, more and more regular visits, uh, we learned some things about him that in his past, he'd had a very difficult relationship with church. His family had gotten hurt at a church and they'd never gone back. So this became an opportunity in some ways to minister to him. But we continued to go. We continued to have the same result come by after a year, after 14 months, after almost a year and a half. I saw his demeanor change. He'd say, Kyle, I think you're right. It's getting more difficult to explain it. More and more months go by. And I remember to this day, vividly, this very stoic, very professional veterinarian. We loved him. We, he did such a good job for us. Finally, he threw his arms up at one point and shook his head and just said, Kyle, I can't explain it. And I told him again, I can't. It's a miracle. Well, our two to three months turned into 20 months. And March of 2018, the cancer finally grew at the speed that was originally expected. We had to say goodbye to our pup. Uh, I get choked up even thinking about it now because I'm a big baby and it's been over four years ago. But amidst the heartbreak, I'm confident to this day that the Lord used my old huckleberry <laughs> to assist in readjusting the mindset of someone who'd gotten hurt in church. I invited him several times. The vet never did show up. And I don't know the end of his story. I don't know what the outcome or the extent of it is going to be. But God does. And I know for 20 months that God used something as foolish sounding as the miracle of a dog to help shame someone who's extremely intelligent, very friendly, an excellent vet, but one that just needed a little bit of an adjustment. I tell you all that to tell you this. Hear me clearly. If we truly believe that God can use anyone or anything like a Great Dane, for the help and the advancement of his kingdom, God can use you too. Now here's the question. Are you allowing God to use you for his kingdom? Or are you on the sidelines passing up opportunities? It's a question that I want you to ponder on this week. 
Now, moving on to the third part, the domino effect. You guys know what a domino effect is, right? You, you pile up a set of dominoes, you line them up in a row, you knock over the first one, then the rest of them come tumbling down. There's a ton of awesome domino videos that people make, people that have way more time on their hands than I do, and I love watching them, some that take minutes at a time to fully fall over and they look amazing and make different designs. I think more than anything, I worry about how many times it took them to set it up without messing it up or somebody sneezing and something falling over. It kind of gives me anxiety to even think about it. But James in these latter verses, he is presenting a domino effect to us by explaining the scriptures to the audience of the royal law of scripture. He says of the royal law, to one, the one to consider the most, we shouldn't be surprised what the royal law of Scripture is. The one that says to love your neighbor as yourself. Why? If we proclaim to love God, we show people that we love God by loving others. How do we love on God? We love others. How do we love others? Well, the closer that we get to God, the better that we love others. Okay, But any favoritism that we're going to show is totally against this royal law. In the same way that a murderer or an adulterer is guilty before the law, no one would hesitate to think that they are guilty. So also is one who shows favoritism. This is the context with which we often quote verse, verse 10. If you break one of the law of God, then you've broken them all. Therefore, you are a lawbreaker. James is breaking down the enormous weight of the righteousness of God by sticking to the point that while some in the church may see it as not that big of a deal to treat others a little bit different, James is making the point that someone who acts in this way is the same as a murderer or an adulterer. No, the consequences are not the same. No, the earthly ramifications may not be felt like a murder or an adultery, but to God and to God's law, it is no different. Here's some examples from Scripture. These, these people come from a quoted in Hebrews 11. Abraham and Sarah, they lied. Moses murdered. Rahab was a prostitute. David did all of that and he had an affair. Gideon worshipped idols. What do all of these people from the Bible have in common? They are mentioned, I said, in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. They are set on a bit of a pedestal as a benchmark for us by the faith that they showed, but at the same time, they were all sinners. We may be here today. We want to be known by our faith. We want to be known by the way that we have persevered in the faith. But we must also recognize that we are still sinners loved by a gracious God. We are capable of any wrongdoing. We must be ready to accept the responsibility and come to repentance as sin creeps in. We're not immune to it. We are not immune to favoritism. Okay, part four, keeping the line moving. Now, at this point, we've done enough of these podcasts. You probably realize that I love baseball. 
especially Atlanta Braves baseball. Uh, if you watched any of the Braves Cardinals series over this past weekend, you know that I'm not in a good spot and I'm not doing okay. That's how you can pray for me. But anyways, if you ever have listened to the manager, Brian Snitker's interviews after a game, more often than not, especially after a win, this phrase is going to come up, and eh, we kept the line moving. Well, what does he mean by this? Okay, backing up, it's like a factory setting. If you're standing at a conveyor belt and you've got these parts, you've got these supplies, and your job is to get these parts and supplies, put them together, and then you put it back on the conveyor belt and it goes down to someone else. You've done your part to keep the line moving, to keep things progressing. Now, in baseball, what does Brian Snicker mean by that? Well, so-and-so had a great at-bat got on base, and it set up the next guy to have a great at bat, who set up the next guy who wanted to succeed, and then boom, the next guy hits a home run, and there you go. That's how they win. Or a pitcher has a shutdown inning. He set up the the bottom half of the inning for them to score a whole bunch of runs and take the lead and win. That's what he means by keeping the line moving. That's the point behind it. All right, so for us, what is the context? Just here in these last two verses, that we'll cover today, verses 12 and 13, James is in many ways issuing the same sentiment. We are all guilty. We are all called to live a higher standard. So James reiterates in different words that we are to be, here it is again, doers of God's word. Verse 12 again, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. Speak and act like one who has been redeemed. Speak and act like one who has been forgiven. Speak and act like one who has been justified by faith. Paul, in Romans, says it even more drastically this way. But thank God that although you used to be slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were handed over. And having been set free from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. Wow. If we are freed, we are forgiven. We are called to be slaves to righteousness. Slaves to obedience. It almost sounds contradictory. Most of the times we think of ourselves as, listen, freedom means getting to do whatever I want. But getting to do whatever you want is living in sin because of your sinful nature, because of my sinful nature. We become slaves to righteousness because of the surrender and the resolve and the peace that we have through relationship with Jesus Christ. We are to keep the line moving by doing the word. By growing in our faith, we do the word. We keep the line moving. By being a witness to others, we do the word. We keep the line moving. By considering others as more important than ourselves, as the word says in Philippians 2, we do the word and keep the line moving. But specifically here, James emphasizes something that we need to cover. Verse 13, what is it that he says we need to keep the line moving on? Mercy. We've actually covered this before too. But again, if we are to proclaim mercy from an almighty God, but we can't show mercy to our neighbor, what in the world does the unbelieving world need to see more from us than anything else? They need to be shown mercy. If we want to see the advancement of the kingdom of God, doesn't it make sense that we would want to show the unbelieving world what we've been shown, yet what they have not recognized yet, but we have recognized 
recognized it because of our fallen self in sin. So I close with this. If we are content to treat people as we always have, then there's a me problem. If we're here and we feel like others should think better of me, then there is a me problem. If we're okay that the world is upside down and we would just as soon pick at it and make fun of it instead of pursuing the advancement of the kingdom of God, then there is a me problem. If we can't recognize the prevalence of sin and therefore the weight of sin, thinking that, well, I'm not really all that bad, then there is a me problem. Lastly, if we don't care, to show mercy, mercy that's already been given to us. And yet we expect mercy from others first, then most definitely there is a me problem. Maybe you're listening today and you realize for the first time that your me problem is because you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You've never been saved. Now, I understand that these are church phrases and church words, but if you've got questions on what it means to live a life for Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, to be saved by Jesus Christ, that is the perfect question that I'd love for you to email me, and I'd love to carry on that conversation. Again, my email address is kyle at gracecartersville.com. Reach out. In the meantime, we've got to remember to do the Word and turn from me to he. Let's pray together. Oh God, the application of your word continues. Lord, maybe above everything, I pray that we would turn from showing favoritism by looking more highly of others and looking more lowly on some based on what they can do for us, based on their financial gains or losses. Father, you created all of us in your image. Help us, God, to show mercy to all, especially because you showed mercy to us first. We love you. We recognize that we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us on the Grace Baptist Podcast. Have a great rest of your week. We will upload another episode next week. Until then, remember to... Love God, serve others, and show grace.